Hey, welcome to night school. It's not quite midnight. It's going to be the name of this episode is not quite midnight. And, you know, there's a very different tone when I do these later in the night opposed to earlier in the day. Because honestly, honest to God, most of the time when I do these episodes, it, it's I had no intention of talking and then I'll drink my two cups of coffee, which are probably equivalent to like five or six, because it's this giant mug that I just love. So I can justify it by being like, it's two cups, but it's really probably a lot more. Because when I try to make iced coffee, I'll, I'll make the coffee in the big mug, and then I'll pour it over ice, and usually <laughs> it ends up forming like three glasses of iced coffee, maybe two and a half. But yeah, a lot of these times I'm like, I, I'm not going to do an episode. And then I, I have my coffee and I'm just so jacked out of my mind that I have to talk. And I love it. It's fun. It's really fun for me to do this. But the late night ones, I think it's a very different tone when you're tired. And uh, I'm, I'm very tired right now. And I also, I'm just feeling very humbled overall. I'm feeling very humbled as today comes to a close. Humbled because I'm just... I'm just seeing the pain people are in and the suffering that goes along with that. And uh, I just, when you see that, when you see that people are in pain and people are suffering, I want to, I want to say something or do something, but so often what I want to say or do isn't the thing that is going to alleviate that suffering. And who am I to alleviate that suffering? There was a quote I heard recently. I don't know who she was, but it was I was watching a lecture and um, there was a, a guest, and I'm not sure who she was, but she made a statement about that, just that when people are in pain or they are suffering, they aren't looking for you to alleviate it. They are looking for you to just be aware of it, to acknowledge it, and that is so much of what we are looking for. And you think about social media and I hesitate to even talk about that, and right now it's, I guess, more of a, a worthwhile topic than ever because we are engaging each other even more through it, which I think is good. I think it's good that it exists. I've always been pro-internet and the communication that comes through the internet in its different forms, you know, whether that's just making a web page, whether that's receiving an email, whether that's being on a message board, being on social media. You know, you can see where just different forms of communication are good and interesting relationships can form purely through that and they can they can be powerful relationships and I'm very aware of that. You know, some of the people I've been talking to the most, I can think of two or three people right now um, who I've never met in person, actually more than that. There's more than that for sure. But two or three people that I, I met as I met online as teenagers. We were all teenagers, and uh, we have stayed in touch over the years. And it's just interesting. It's just very interesting because, and it's different too. I don't consider people. There's people I haven't met in person who I know through music, art, these specific interests, and that's a little different. You know, I see that as a little different. I don't, I don't think of those as online relationships because those are those relationships are as much based on the mail and communicating through art and music as well. So those are more multi-dimensional. But there are people who, who I've been in touch with now for 
over half my life who I've never met in person. But that tells you something, you know, because back in the day with the internet, there was this tendency to see any communication that was made through the internet as, you know, somehow lesser, somehow not as full as a real body-to-body relationship. And I'm not talking about romance or anything like that. I'm just talking about being able to look someone in the eye or hear, hear their voice. And there is just an obvious value to that. And, you know, I, I've also, you know, organic relationships, organic friendships, old-fashioned, traditional meeting somebody and maintaining a friendship just by proximity, you know, that's important too. But I, I think that you can see where our bodies aren't the most important thing. And I, I think there is something spiritual that I've learned through the internet, and that's that you can have strong and enduring friendships and really know somebody in some cases without actually ever having been in the same room or even the same state. You know, I talk to my friend Kyle a lot, whose music I've played on here, and it's sort of strange. I've never actually met the guy. You know, he's a great example, and there's other other people as well. And uh, it's uh, it's just an interesting thing, and it shows you that our bodies alone aren't the whole thing. So, what is that? If you can if you can make friends through technology and maintain those friendships almost as closely as you would, or in some cases even even more closely than you do uh, other friends, even people you know in person. I mean, I feel closer to some people that I've never met in person than people that I've spent countless hours hanging out with, who I love too. It's not a matter of, it's not a, it, I'm not really comparing or measuring, but I do feel closer to certain people that I've, I've never actually been in the same room as. And I mean, I think about people who inspired me as well. I mean, I think about my friend Ryan, who, when I was a teenager, uh, barely a teenager, maybe 14 or 15, I first got in touch with him, and he had a, a college radio show where he played all kinds of weird music, and he, he did all kinds of off-the-wall banter, and he, he ran his own little you know, DIY record label and made his crazy music that opened my mind to the fact that you could do that. I, I knew what punk was, I knew I'd heard of DIY and that type of thing, but until I actually talked to him, I never really knew you could just sit down and do it. You could print out artwork, you could burn CDRs, you could, you know, make tapes for that matter, you know, but he just, he, he put that in my brain, and you think, where would I be without that guy? You know, and, and to maintain that friendship. My friend Stacy, I, I talked to her, and she she has a family, and you see these people grow, uh, and uh, it's it's impressive. But it just shows you that, you know, the the physical body isn't everything, and we do we are able to make these connections even without our bodies. So that should tell us that the body isn't everything. That should tell us th- that our physical, material selves isn't the whole thing, even though our selves are here. But that isn't necessarily where the connection comes in. So the idea, you know, back when people really not only undervalued internet communication, but also campaigned against it. You know, part of that was the paranoia, as I always say, you know, in in 1998, if you used the internet, your kid's going to get abducted by a pedophile, your wife's going to leave you for another guy, 
and you're going to get your identity stolen. You're going to lose everything. And if you lose those things, if you lose your kid, your wife, and your your identity, your credit card, you're lost, man. What, what, what else do you got? You're going to have to turn into the person who's stealing somebody else's kid, somebody else's wife, and somebody else's credit card. It's a vicious cycle. If you used the internet back then, you, you know, people would warn you. Um, but, uh, you know, so people were actually campaigning against talking to people online. I mean, I used to get shit for it. I always use the example of a friend who gave another friend shit about using um, his email, checking his email every day. But I remember when I would tell friends of mine, good friends of mine who I love, I loved and I love good personal childhood friends of mine. I remember telling them like, oh, yeah, I talked to this guy and he does this. And they were very skeptical. They were nervous. It was something new. I mean, it really brought out the animal in us to be like, yeah, you're talking to some 20-year-old guy. You're a 15-year-old talking to some 25 or 20-year-old guy. Because I think about that, you know, referencing my friend Ryan, uh, the fact that, you know, I was like 15. He was 20, I believe, when I first started talking to the to him. But, you know, he, along with Pump Up the Volume, you know, his his college radio show, Paranoia Radio, great name, great name for a radio station, radio show. Uh, you know, I, I have no doubt that that influenced this show in some way. I wouldn't say that it's a direct influence, like I'm trying to do that, but it definitely planted a seed. And, you know, also, you know, he introduced me to Rudimentary Peni. I was listening to just garbage punk and he basically closed the door on that for me by introducing me to rudimentary peni, uh, and that influenced my art. So you can see where where the internet ch- completely changed the trajectory of my life. And I wouldn't say it was the internet itself. It was another human being who had interests, who opened my brain to things. Uh, and, and in that way, I, I have eternal gratitude. In fact, I'm humbled. I think it's important to remember that. And... Um, and it's kind of weird to approach somebody and say, hey, you changed my life. But it's the reality. The reality, when I think about it, I'm just like, wow. Yeah, he he introduced me to Rudimentary Peni, which Nick Blinko's artwork completely changed. Now, I was always an artist. I always drew. But that completely opened up my mind to these other dimensions of possibility when it comes to visual art. Uh, and pretty much closed the door on whatever short punk rock phase I went to because I found rudimentary peni, and he and I didn't find it. He told me about them, and that, I was like, oh, this is what I was looking for. You know, some people have a passion for that. Some Some people have a passion for a certain genre of music, but sometimes you're looking for a very specific thing, and you don't know what it is until you find it or someone finds it for you and gives it to you like a, a beautiful gift. And that's how I felt about Rudimentary Peni. Basically, you know, there's still some... You know, I like Bad Brains. There, there's some classics, but I never felt the need to really delve much deeper. I, I'll always love The Misfits, especially Sam Hain. Things like that. But rudimentary peni, I was like, I don't think I'm going to get anything else out of this now that I found this. Uh, and I, I was in ninth grade, I think, somewhere around there. Yeah, I was in ninth grade. I was in junior high still. And so you can see we're just talking to somebody, just casually talking to somebody. It wasn't like, sit down and I will show you this. And speaking of that, speaking of these sort of 
you know, this sort of like impromptu mentorship. And I, I hesitate to call it mentorship because it's not formal. It's just casual. It's just talking. You're just talking to somebody. And that's kind of how it should be. I feel like that's the way it should be is you should just get this stuff through conversation, through friendship. And I think about, you know, another person was uh, a guy named Death Metal Tom. And I don't know if I've really talked about him on here. I may have in the past. He's no longer with us. But he was a guy, he was two years older than me, and he went to my elementary school, and he wasn't known as Death Metal Tom then. <laughs> kind of a nerdy guy. Blonde, like kind of just, you know, he just looked like the average American kid. Skinny, blonde kid, kind of nerdy, but, you know, just straight-laced looking and... I never really knew him, you know, he lived, he went to my elementary school, so he lived relatively close to me, I would see him and his family around, didn't know him, never spoke to him, but when you go to elementary school with people, you, you pay attention, you know who people are by their face, if nothing else. I remember being in a blockbuster, I remember being in the blockbuster downtown, and looking out the window, I was browsing movies, and I looked out the window, and Death Metal Tom walked by, he was probably like 12 years old, and he had a duffel bag over his shoulder. <laughs> I don't know where he was going, where he was coming from, but I was, I was just like, oh, that's a kid from my school. And little did I know, this guy would become known to me in high school as Death Metal Tom, and he would be something of a mentor to me when it came to death metal. Uh, in When I was in 10th grade, because we were in the, our, our school system used, high school was 10th grade through 12th grade, the three-year system, uh, not not ninth through 12th like other schools. So I got into 10th grade, and by then my punk rock phase had kind of gone, you know, it really never, I never really had a full punk rock phase. It was very short-lived. And by then, you know, what I was looking for, too, from punk rock, I found much more deeply in heavy metal. And, of course, I'd been, I'd, my sister introduced me to Metallica, so I was already into some metal, but it was just, you know, being in 10th grade, you know, and, and your phases, they go so quick. You know, I think about the span of time, like when I, let's say, for example, like I went from, you know, like being, being introduced to punk rock to like death metal, and that was probably a matter of six months or less. My, my proper introduction to death metal actually was, I was at Tower Records looking in the, the dollar bin or whatever, the sale bin, and they had a, Roadrunner Records had put out a CD called Death Metal Greatest Hits. And, of course, that only included bands that were on Roadrunner Records. Of course, that only included bands that the label who released Death Metal's greatest hits, uh, only bands who were on their roster. But it turns out, of course, you know, many of the greatest hits of, of that late 80s, early 90s Death Metal era, many of the greatest bands from that era were on Roadrunner Records, so it worked out. And so that was my introduction to, you know, malevolent creation, immolation, suffocation... I'm not trying to rhyme here, but these band names rhyme. You know, even, uh, you know, I think Bruharia, they might have been on there. I'm trying to think of who else, doesn't really matter. Uh, definitely Sepultura, Sepultura was on there. Uh, it was good, though. It was a really, it was, it was a lot of memorable songs, and that was my introduction to death metal, and I felt really cool listening to it. But you don't really know where to go, but I, I kind of, you know, delved into some other stuff here or there. This was probably 2001. I don't know. I don't know what year it was that I got the death metal's greatest hits, but by 2001, I was very interested in death metal, and, you know, and, and it was 
such an easy introduction to black metal from there. It was basically all of this stuff came at me at once. But I started, you know, I, I got some kind of death metal shirt, some metal shirts, and I started wearing those to school. And Death Metal Tom was a guy, he was a senior and I was a sophomore. And he was still very straight-laced looking, you know, short hair, just blue jeans. But he would wear all kinds of death metal shirts and some relatively obscure stuff, like brutal death metal. And that's, I'm not using brutal as an adjective necessarily. I'm, there's a, a subgenre, brutal death metal. And there was a band, Brodekin. I never really knew how to pronounce that. B-R-O-D-E-Q-U-I-N-N, I think. And he would wear that shirt. He had pretty obscure taste considering, especially for a high schooler. And one day, I don't even remember how we became friends, but... He just started talking to me. I think I had a cephalic carnage shirt. Maybe that's how it came up. So we started talking about cephalic carnage. And then, you know, we started going to shows together. But he took me under his wing, really. And he introduced me to a lot of great death metal. And the guy had such a passion for metal. I remember Manowar played Seattle around that time. I think they were playing with Immortal. And I'd gone to some death metal shows with Tom, and he had a... The cool thing about Tom is he had a radio show, too, and I think that's another seed that was planted in my head, this idea of doing a radio show. He had a show... (laughs) Uh, What's amazing about death metal Tom is he was in high school, but he had a college radio show and a 20-something goth girlfriend who he met through his radio show. She came in to do an ad read for a vegan club because she went to the college where he had the radio show and his radio show is called destroying the mainstream i love the bluntness of that you know i love the balls of that and uh, and he was such a low-key guy too you know he didn't try to force it on anybody he wasn't trying to be mr rebel he just he was very low-key very straight-laced except for the fact that he wore these brutal death metal shirts and some of them were very gruesome some of the artwork was very gruesome and he he didn't hold it back uh, but I love that he met his his girlfriend was over 21 because I remember I went to shows with them and I knew she was over 21 so he was 18 in high school he had a college radio show at the local community college and he had a 21 plus goth girlfriend and she was cool I got to know her she was really cool she told me one time as a surprise for Tom's birthday she was going to make him a quilt made out of death metal shirts I don't know if that ever happened I like to imagine it did I like to imagine she gave him that quilt Um, but uh, he probably would have been like you know these would have been good t-shirts you ruined a bunch of good t-shirts no he didn't talk like that (laughs) he didn't and uh, But anyway, it was just, I, I really felt honored that this guy took me under his wing. And, you know, I had long hair by then, and uh, I had my own, all my metal shirts. And I was very into black metal by then, too. And he didn't like black metal. He would say, where are the riffs? But there was respect. But anyway, I remember one time he went to a Manowar show. He was going to a Manowar show. And at that point, I was, I was too weak for Manowar then. You know, when I was 16, however old I was at the time, I just... Manowar wasn't something that made a lot of sense to me yet, and I do love Manowar now. I wouldn't say I'm the biggest fan. I wouldn't be able to tell you the name of every song, but I, I do enjoy listening to Manowar, and I take it seriously. I take I, I listen to it with some sincerity, not ironically. And Tom, though, I was just like, "Oh, you're going to see Manowar," and he was like, "You know, it's metal." And it's not like he would have gone to a new metal show. 
It's not like he would have gone to something that was just totally outside, you know, the good metal. But uh, nothing against new metal. But, you know, he, he wouldn't have gone to something like that. But it just kind of hit me. He was just like, you know, I, I just want to go hear some riffs. And he did like Immortal by that point. Because by that time, Immortal was playing... They were basically playing heavy metal riffs with raspy vocals. It was early 2000s, so they had begun to release... You know, their their music was basically just triumphant heavy metal with raspy vocals. And he actually liked Manowar, or he liked Immortal because of the riffs. They had audible riffs. I used to say to him, you can hear the riffs, you just have to listen. You know, just listen to, you know, but he'd give me shit about being into black metal. But he introduced me to a lot of good death metal. And we went to one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life together. It was, I, I can't remember who headlined but Deeds of Flesh was one of the openers. And to this day, I tell people, like, people are like, what? You know, I stopped going to shows at a certain point, not because I'm bitter. I just, the whole thing just wasn't for me. You know, music to me has never really been a social experience, unless you're hanging out with a good friend, unless you're hanging out with Death Metal Tom and talking about it. But, you know, I just, I kind of just outgrew going to shows for, for whatever reason. It just it was more effort than it was worth. And, you know, it, I think I've missed out on a lot, too. It's not that I think that I'm cooler than it, than the whole thing. I, I think I've probably missed out on a lot of fun, a lot of cool experiences. But I just, it's just a low priority for me. And uh, but still, to this day, if somebody asks me, and I, this has come up many times, I say the best concert I've ever seen was Deeds of Flesh in Seattle in 2002. After every single song, and the fans were just—I don't know if Deeds of Flesh had a ton of fans in Seattle. I don't know what it was, but everyone was going crazy. They were and they were a three piece. They didn't even have two guitars. You know, you think about death metal and two guitars seem mandatory, but Deeds of Flesh was playing as a three piece. The bass was cranked really loud. I had never heard them before. At that point I had never heard any recordings by Deeds of Flesh. And they just killed it. I can't think of a better way to put it. Deeds of Flesh just it, it just ruled. And after every song, the fans were so into it. After every song, you could you could just feel the band feeding off of it. And after every song, they were they just were like, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. They were like, this is the best fucking city we've ever been to. You know, they were so energized by the crowd. And like all they could say is just fuck yeah after every song. And there was even this really tall, skinny guy who had bought one of their shirts. And, you know, that was the era, maybe this is still a thing, but that was the era where death metal bands would make shirts that had some sort of phrase on the back in big white lettering, like bold letters. It would say, like, death fucking metal or something like that. Uh, you know, Cradle of Filth had one. You know, I don't even need to say it, but uh, it would just have big, bold letters on the back. It was just... It was the statement of death metal at the time to have a big, bold statement on the back. And so this guy had bought Deeds of Flesh's shirt, and throughout their entire set, this really tall, lanky guy was just holding that shirt up. You know, his arms were completely stretched out. So this guy's like, he's basically like a giant scaffold. He's like a crane or something, holding Deeds of Flesh's own shirt up at them. He's just holding their own T-shirt up to them, at them. 
And it was just incredible. I mean, it was seriously the best concert I've ever seen. And this is no joke, but I do find the humor in it. <laughs> you know, I'm not, it's not a joke. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this truthfully, but I also see the humor in the whole thing that Deeds of Flesh was seriously the best set I've ever seen. And, this, you know, there was no substances involved. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't stoned. I was just watching them sober. It was just so pure and so good. Um, so that was great. But Death Metal Tom introduced me to a lot of good death metal. You know, I, I have to say that he had very powerful, strong taste in death metal, as Death Metal Tom should. And he was known that way in school. You know, our group of friends knew him that way. And I heard after he left for college, he went to this college in eastern Washington, Washington State. And he was known as Death Metal Tom there, too. And so I'm glad the name carried. DMT, Death Metal Tom. It was his real nickname that everybody, you just refer to him that way. And he passed away some years back. Um, you know, I don't know whether to get into it or not, but what I heard is uh, pancreatitis from severe alcoholism, which, you know, he wasn't, he, he never drank in high school. He wasn't a partier. You know, I would party. Some of my my close friends, we partied, but Death Metal Tom did not party. He kind of came from a nerdy background. He kind of, his friends, like I said, I went to elementary school with him, and he was friends with, like, the kind of early computer nerd crowd, people who were probably using the Internet and making Internet friends way back then. That was kind of his group. And he, but yeah, he got heavy into the drinking thing, and I heard some things happen in his life, and, you know, why go into that, really, but... You know, I think a guy named Death Metal Tom, you can talk about his cause of death. But yeah, I heard it was pancreatitis from severe alcoholism. And that was, I think, 2014, maybe. I don't remember the exact year that it happened, but it affected me. I hadn't spoken to him in years. I think we had, you know, some email exchanges. I saw him maybe once after he went to college, and he had started dipping. He had gotten into chewing tobacco, which I felt was fitting. But Death Metal Tom, and I still think of him every time I hear Cryptopsy. He loved Cryptopsy, turned me on to them. And, you know, there's some people, and I, I remember my friend Miles talking about some friends of ours in California, how when you hear certain music in their car, it gives that music just, it just makes it sound better. There's something about that experience that makes it sound better. And it was the same thing for Death Metal Tom's car, where if you listen to what else, Death Metal, in his car, it just sounded so much better. And that stayed with you. That experience stayed with you. And there, I, I still can't listen to Immolation or Cryptopsy without remembering hearing that in his car. But when someone is, is willing to just be your friend, but they kind of unintentionally mentor you. But, he, you know, he would say, hey, check this out. I remember him selling shit on eBay. He was selling like, oh, I have two of this CD. I'm selling one of them on eBay. You know, if you win it, or he's like, if you pay me five bucks, you know, I'll, I'll just take it down and give it to you. I'll sell it to you. You know, it was that kind of thing. And, and that's good, you know, to meet people like that. It's really good. People who are willing to, you know, share their knowledge, share their taste, pass something on to you. And that happens in all different dimensions of your life, too. You know, I still think about a coworker of mine where I didn't trust her at first because she was too nice. And even though I had a mom who would be considered too nice, I knew her, so I knew that it was real. But with this coworker, she was so nice, and I didn't really trust it, because I'm like, eh, you know, like, 
I don't know that I trust. I was cynical, and I was like, I don't know that I trust someone who's this nice who I don't know. It was very Russian of me. And, you know, that's a sort of prison mentality as well. You know, you've heard that in prison. When someone's too nice in prison, they're usually trying to get something out of you, manipulate you. I think the same thing happens in the workplace. Who knew that the workplace can have that sort of prison mentality? Who knew? But, uh, you know, I kind of thought that she was a little too nice, but it turned out she was for real. And some things she said to me at the time, you know, that I, they've just stayed with me. And one of those was coming from a place of yes. I had some shitty OkCupid date one day on, on a Friday, and she asked me what my weekend, my coworker asked me what my weekend plans were. Her name was Amanda. Asked me what I was doing, you know, oh, what, do you, what are your plans this weekend? Normal coworker talk, and I was like, eh, I've got an OkCupid date tonight, but I, I don't know, uh, you know, I kind of got a bad feeling about it. I don't, I don't know. I'm just kind of doing it just to do it. And my coworker, she was like, you know, just come from a place of yes. And that doesn't mean, like, force it, but she said, you know, just come from a place of yes. And that simple statement, it stayed with me because I was like, you know, like, there is something to that. There is something to that idea of coming from a place of yes. Because so often I was coming from a place of no. Here I was, I had agreed to do something. I had agreed to go on this weird internet date. Speaking of internet, you know, internet dating. I'm, I'm so glad that I just, I'm so glad that I'm not doing any of that anymore. Not because I have a problem with internet dating. You know, it's as good as any avenue these days. But I'm just glad that I'm just not stuck in that cycle uh, of feeling like you need to like find somebody meet somebody talk to somebody make a date it's a good experience though you know it's it's kind of like live streaming it's like my experience with live streaming where it's a good exercise if nothing else i definitely went on some okay cupid dates just as an exercise just to you know kind of improvise it's a test you know because you're nervous and uh you know it's a good test you really you can figure some things out you know, in Fight Club, they were like, how much do you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? And uh, my version of that is, how much can you know about yourself if you've never been on an OK Cupid date? You know, I think it's true, though. I think you do get to see kind of what you're all, all about if you meet some random stranger from the Internet and have to deal with the fact that they might not look as good as you thought they would. You might have some awkward uh, exchanges. You know, it might be weird. It's going to be weird. Even if it's great, it's going to be weird. But you can come from a place of yes, you know. I, I learned that. It's just people people mentor you. Anybody who's ever passed on just a small bit of knowledge and you've taken it, you've learned from it. That's, you know, it's just those are my mentors. Just the, the random people I've known, friends and acquaintances who have passed something on to me that it was unexpected. Because so many people will go to a mentor and they're like, teach me, teach me. I'm, I'm desperate. I'm desperate to be taught. But it's the real things that I've learned are from the people who just kind of casually pass something on to you that changes your life. And I can say that about these internet friends that I've talked to since I was 15. You know, this guy who basically planted this, these seeds in my brain, radio doing your own weird underground radio show. Oh, hey, here's rudimentary peanut. Oh, hey, here, you can make wacky music and release it yourself. Death Metal Tom. Again, radio. Doing your own type of radio show. 
coming from a place of yes, you know, all these things. And I, the, the list could really go on. It would really be, it would be too long for just this episode. But something that I'm trying to do more of is to let people know how they've impacted me. And it can be kind of awkward because sometimes they kind of know they've done that. And, uh, but sometimes we're afraid to do that. Sometimes we're afraid to give someone credit. And that's part of this, too. I'm trying to be more aware of that, where I don't want to be afraid to give someone else credit because it doesn't take anything away from me. Just because I got something from someone else doesn't take anything away from me. And it actually, it gives me more because it makes me realize... It, it, make, it, it doesn't take any value away from the thing. You know, it doesn't... By giving someone credit... It doesn't take anything away from what you learned from them or what you got from them or what they introduced you to. It actually adds something to you because you start to see the value in the people you know. And you might start to recognize how other people you know that you didn't realize were impacting you in some way are impacting you. And it could be for better or worse, but we're focusing here on the better. We're coming from that place of yes. So you start to realize, oh, you know, and you look at your parents. And of course, you know, when your mom passes, you know, and I know that's a common topic on here. And I guess I'm hesitant to talk about it so much because I know that people just feel weird about death and sentimentality. But, you know, when your parent passes away, you really, very quickly, you realize like, oh, that thing that I, that kind of seemed like it went in one ear and out the other, actually not only do I remember it, but I'm realizing now how much it impacted me, how much that random thing your parents said that you took for granted, maybe, and it did feel like it went in one ear and out the other. Well, it turns out a part of it stayed, maybe all of it stayed right in your brain. So there's that, but I'm also, you know, it makes you think about, you know, my dad, and, you know, it makes me think about my dad as well, and just, you know, how much I learned from him, from him simply living by example. You know, he was never the type of dad who tried to, like, tell me what to believe or what to do for that matter. I always knew that I had his love, but simply by living a life, and I guess I'm fortunate in a way that, you know, my dad is one of the most consistent people I know in terms of his life directly reflects his values, and I feel that he has really great values. And to be able to say that about your parent is a special thing. And as a child, you know, you, you learn so much by observing your parents, and I'm able to look at certain things and say, oh, wow, you know, I learned that not because my dad tried to hammer at home, but because I observed him doing it, and now it's a part of me. That's pretty incredible. And you think about mentorship, and your parents, you know, if they're halfway decent, those are going to be your mentors one way or another. I mean, if, you're, if they're not halfway decent, they're still going to be your mentors, and you're going to probably pick up some negative traits from them. And we probably all do pick up some negative traits. But when I look at both my parents, I just see the the wealth of knowledge they passed on to me unintentionally. The stuff that they didn't even realize they were passing on. Not that they didn't teach me some things. Not that they, they didn't coach me in some ways. But I, I really recognize how much they just unintentionally passed on, how much value they gave me without trying. And it's the same thing with these friendships that I'm talking about, with these these friends that you have, and they just there's this casual mentorship, and then you start to realize that it's everybody. You start to realize that it's everybody you know. You start to realize it's your sisters. 
You realize it's your one friend you had said something one day when you were young that stood out to you and you always remembered it. And what is that? Well, they taught you something. So you're constantly being mentored by other people in your life, no matter who they are. They could be younger than you. Uh, it's just an interesting thing, and it is humbling to go back to that. It's very humbling when you start to realize that, when you start to recognize the impact that people have had on you. And you realize, too, that it's, you know, you're also influencing other people. You're also passing things on to them. And that should be a reason to... Maybe not a reason to... Maybe a way to put it would be, that should be a... a when you realize that, when you realize that not only are people influencing you when you don't even realize it, they're unintentionally influencing your life, that you are influencing them too, and that should make you reluctant to try to hammer things into their brains because you realize that, oh, these unintentionally, these, these unintentional ways that I influence people probably have a much bigger impact than the things that I try to force on them. I think a lot about coercion and how, you know, you can't truly coerce someone into a belief. Because deep down, no matter how much they, no matter how much you trick them, you know, no matter how much you brainwash them, deep down, they don't truly believe it. Because they didn't take the same road to get there. Not that you have to take the same road, but, you know, if someone doesn't take their own road to get somewhere, or if they don't feel like they had any control Deep down, they're not going to truly believe that. And you see that with kids who are forced to take on certain religious values, political values, whatever it is. So, so much of mentorship, our idea of mentorship, is actually something a lot more subtle, a lot more casual than we realize. Not to take anything away from you know formal relationships, formal mentorship. You know, sometimes that's valuable. I've never sought it out. It feels weird to me. It feels weird to me to be in that position. I mean, teachers and coaches, that's one thing. But when you seek someone out and you say, teach me, I don't know, it's never felt right for me. And realizing just, you know, that so many people in my life, basically everyone I know who's been close to me, People who have come and gone, for that matter, not just people who have stuck around, but people who have come and gone have all taught me something. I've learned something from virtually everyone I've ever known. Not that it's all equal, not that what you've learned is all equal. Of course, the people who are closest to you have had the greatest impact, but it is a very humbling realization. And you no longer have to clutch at that jewel and act like you found it. It is a form of Indra's net. It is a form of that great interconnectivity. And uh, you no longer have to feel like everything is yours because you receive things from other people and you in turn give things to other people. The things that you don't even realize you're giving and the things that you don't even realize you are being given but you know that you have them because they're the things that stay with you. The fact that my coworker casually told me, oh, just come from a place of yes about a random OkCupid date that I don't even remember who it was. It was a one-off. I went on this date. My original suspicion ended up being true. I know that. I know that my cynicism about this date 
was founded, was well-founded because I know that I didn't go on a second date with whoever this person was. But the fact that my coworkers' little advice, this offhanded Friday afternoon advice has stayed with me all of these years. I mean, that was probably seven years ago, eight years ago maybe. And the fact that that stayed with me. So you know you receive something because it stays with you. You know you have it because it stays with you. But it is something I'm trying to be more conscious of, of giving people credit and letting them know when they have an impact on you. And you can't be over the top about it. It has to be sincere. You have to tell them sincerely. And I get uncomfortable when people throw that stuff at me. You know, it's not, not that it happens all the time. Not that I'm saying, oh, people are always telling me yeah, it's such a big impact on me. You, you know, you had, it's a very drunken, it's like what someone on ecstasy does. I just love you so much, you know, like, did I ever tell you just how beautiful you are? You're just so amazing, you know, and there's some honesty to that. There's honesty in that drunkenness, but it's just when someone's drunk or drugged and they throw that shit on you, uh, it comes easier, so it goes easier. But when someone in, in sober sincerity tells you something like that, it does impact you. It does stay with you, but you have to be sincere about it. You can't just throw that at stuff either. You can't just compliment. It's like, same thing with compliments. You know, that's something I could do more too, I'm realizing. I used to hold on to compliments. I used to think like, oh, uh, these are going to run out. It's like love. You know, love is this finite resource. And if I love too many things, well, uh, it's going to run out. There's no displacement. You know, you don't run out of love. You don't run out of compliments. But they should be sincere. Your love should be sincere. Your compliments toward another person should be sincere. But you can still make an effort to do them. Because, I mean, even when I felt them, there are many times where I didn't say them. But it can be weird. And sometimes there's an understanding. I mean, I have good friends where if I, if I were to compliment them, it'd be a little weird because I think we just have an understanding. You know, it, you know hey, we're, we're, we're part of this operation together. We don't need to constantly talk about it. So there's a time and a place, you know, and <laughs> compliment people more, give them credit, let them know the impact they've had on you, but don't make it weird. Don't make it weird. That's basically uh, how I'm feeling about it. But uh, realizing that that's not a finite resource, that's not a jewel that you're giving to somebody else. You know, it's not a, an, it's not a finite resource that you need to hold on to. If you compliment someone, it doesn't mean you can't compliment someone else. And you know, and if you end up complimenting someone even when you don't mean it, is that so horrible either? You know, I mean, I try not to do that, but still is that so horrible either? Maybe something really bad'll happen if you do that. If you dole out compliments when you don't actually mean it, maybe something terrible will happen. I don't know. It makes someone feel better for a second. Or they'll, they'll know you're lying. I mean, I think that's the biggest concern with that is like sometimes someone will say something nice to me and I'm like, oh, you, it's not, you know, where I just know they're just saying it, you know, and that can be worse. Or, you know, something I've experienced at work, at jobs, is where you like work your ass off on some just painstaking project. It took you forever. It just, it stressed you out and, you know, it came out fine. It came out good. You met the standard that was expected of you, and you just get, you barely get a pat on the head. 
you get a pat on the head, but they don't even touch your head. They just like hover their hand over your head for a second. They're like, oh, oh, good. And then you do something really minor, and then you they heap praise on you. You do something that, you know, just didn't even matter, something completely inconsequential, and your boss is just like, oh, my God, this is, this is amazing. And you're just like, well, what about that big thing I did? What about that big thing? You know, and it's just, it's funny how that works. And you end up feeling kind of, even though you got complimented for one thing, you end up having a misgiving about it because you put a lot more effort into this other thing. And sometimes that happens when you, you know, you do do something effortlessly because it just flowed better. But when I'm, I'm talking about something at work where you really do something minor, like for example, I, I, I shit you not, I got a raise once because my boss walked by my cubicle and so he saw me typing fast. You know, I'm a very fast typer and I do it. I don't do the home row. I can't use all my fingers. I do it very fast with just pretty much just my index fingers with my pointer fingers. Is that the same thing as the index finger, the pointer finger? I don't even remember. It's been a long time since I thought about the names of my fingers I know the middle finger, and I know the pinky. I know the ring finger. So the index finger must be the pointer finger, I guess. I can do it by deduction. It gets confusing when the same finger has multiple names for it. But anyway, I I type with just the two main pointer fingers, but I do it very quickly. And my boss walked by once, and I was typing very quickly about uh, what I was doing. I don't remember, but... Uh, you know, my review happened to be a short time later. Or, uh, there wasn't even a review. He called me in randomly, and he was like, you know, I just I saw you typing really fast, and you just you, you work so hard that I'm going to give you a little raise. I don't, I don't think it was a major raise, but it was still, like, I got a raise just because my boss saw me typing fast. But then there were other instances, same boss, where it was like I would do something that just destroyed me mentally, and it came out well. But it was really it took a long time. It was a lot of work. And you, you don't even get thanked. You know, and that's fine. I think it's good to go through that. I think it's good to have that experience. It makes you tougher. Uh, but it is just funny how that stuff can be so arbitrary. Um, and that, that should make you realize, too, that it's like, you know, recognize when someone's put a lot of work into something. And that, that can be, even if you don't like how it came out, just recognizing the work someone put into something is worth recognizing sometimes. And you don't have to, and that doesn't, sincerity doesn't even really come into play at that point because all you're doing is recognizing effort. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, going back though, I don't really have too much more to say on the pain and suffering I brought up in the beginning. I think it's just, it's self evident right now in the way a lot of people are expressing themselves. And now with, you know, there's race riots going on. And I don't have anything to say about that right now. Not on here. I'm, I'm not... I don't think that I have the mental capacity right now to really... I mean, maybe I shouldn't even have, have said it right now. Maybe I shouldn't have even said it. But I don't think I really have the... I don't think my mental health right now can really engage with that. And I just, it's, there's so much pain and suffering, and I I do fear, you know, I just, it's like, I'm just thinking about people's minds right now. That's all I'm thinking about. And I know there are other things, and I'm not, you know, I don't, I shouldn't even go into it. I don't, because I don't really have anything to say. All I'm thinking about is the pain and suffering. 
And when I see that, it does make me feel humbled. And sometimes saying you feel humbled sounds not very humble. Sometimes talking about humility, it doesn't come across as false humility, but it just seems, I don't know, it just doesn't seem right either. But I'm humbled by the people I know. That's the one thing I know that I'm humbled by. And uh, the people that I've known, not just the people I know. I think about my family, just having the family I have. And and I feel like talking about the way that connections can exist through the internet also kind of makes sense with my family as well. We're, we're not the most physically close family. You know, we're not a very touchy-feely family. My mom and I were. You know, my mom and I had our own little culture, I feel like. I feel like she just created that. I feel like she brought that out of people. It wasn't really my doing. My mom created a certain culture. And uh, it was a little more touchy-feely. It was very real. She was a tough woman. Uh, but it, it did have a sort of a touchy-feeliness to it. There was kind of a, an openness and an intimacy to it. And that was just how she was with everybody. But with the rest of my family, you know, we're, we're not necessarily that way with each other, but the love is open. You know, the channel is open. And in the same way that I feel like, you know, physical proximity is important, you know, this whole experience has also made me realize that, you know, that love can really, that connection can really travel. And especially right now, when you personally can't really travel to visit people, you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to make contact with too many people, knowing that your family cares for you and that you have each other's backs, knowing that that is there, that that channel is open. It transcends your bodies. And it's kind of like that internet thing I'm talking about, where you can be impacted by somebody. You can make lasting friendships through the internet. And... The internet even sounds like an archaic term now. It sounds outdated. And part of that is because it's so integrated with everything that it's not just the old internet that you used to access on that computer in the corner of the room with the big tower where you push a button on the tower. Log in. Log on to AOL. You know, the internet is much more integrated in with our lives. It's on all these different devices. It's what most people are doing at any given time. You think about just you see somebody on their phone, you know, unless they're sending a text message, chances are they're doing something on the Internet. <laughs> you know? <laughs> hey, you see that guy walking down the street? He's, he's looking at something on his phone. He's probably on the Internet in some capacity. So you can see where even just calling it the Internet seems old, outdated. Um, but, uh... Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm you know, I like these late night sessions in a way. They feel less preachy for one. I guess I guess they're more reflective or something. I don't know. I don't want to get too meta here. It's a show talking about a show talking about a show. But uh you know, it's I, I don't know. I'm just I'm trying to put things in my brain right now. I'm trying to load some stuff. I'm trying to get some stuff loaded in my brain at the moment that I'm going to carry with me through this summer as things get hot. Because that's what's scaring me too. 
That's scaring me, too, is knowing that things are getting warm. Today was in the 80-something degree category, which, you know, isn't terribly hot. But, you know, the summer heat can be violent. And when I used to go out to bars, I would always notice on those hot nights, it felt like the tension. You you know, as, as happy as people were to be out, there were also a lot more cop cars. You were way more likely to see a cop car outside of a bar with the lights flashing because something happened. So there's something about that heat. And when people aren't feeling good, when people are upset, and you throw heat into it, it can be dangerous. And so, you know, I just, I guess I have summer goals. I'm not a goal-oriented person. I have things I want to do. I guess I end up doing things that I want to do, but I'm not someone who writes down my goals. You know, I referenced Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, and the idea of, like, writing down your goals, developing a mantra, saying something out loud. But that said, when I do that, it's more in generalities. As part of my meditations, you know, there are certain things I repeat but they're not goals specific to me. They're not like, what are they called? What's the, um, like sigil magic. You know, it's it, what I do is never sigil magic. And any time I've tried to do something like sigil magic, and I have actually done some rituals like that before, just to see what it was like, what it felt like to do that, to see if anything happened. But I don't like it when it's something that's too specific and too self-serving. Like, I want to get this type of job. So I'm going to write it down and then turn the letters into a symbol, spit on it, and burn it. That's what, a sigil, that's what sigil magic basically is. And uh, I've never really, you know, when I have goals, I guess they're not normally specific personal goals that I want to reach. I, I have basic states of being that I want to reach, but I don't have specific goals necessarily. And I think all of that stuff is great. If you have personal goals... I think that's wonderful. I really do. If you have a five-year plan, but whenever someone mentions a five-year plan, I'm just like, huh, I can't imagine committing to that. But I guess I do have summer goals right now. I guess I have a three-month plan. Wanting to maintain the stability I have and create more stability in my life, financially, you know, emotionally, spiritually, all those core things that I feel that I need. But I also have some ideas that I just I have in my brain right now, and, and that's to reach out to people more in ways that strengthen them without trying to tell them what to do or how to do it. But just v- be very aware of my own sincere feelings about those people and who they are and what I appreciate about them and not being that person who's on Molly or who's drunk, slobbering with affection towards someone, but to, you know, find those opportunities to say something and mean it. And maybe I shouldn't even be saying this right now, and I should just be doing it, but it's something that I'm thinking about, and I feel like this summer is going to be a time where it's more important to do that than ever. You know, and I don't know that that will alleviate the pain and the suffering. I don't know that it will alleviate any of it, even for me or for anybody else, and I don't, I don't really feel like I'm in too much pain. I don't feel like I'm suffering. 
And, uh, you know, I've had experiences recently, too, with just, you know, attempts to do good. Uh, there's a lady down the street. I can't remember if I almost got into this story at the beginning of the episode or not, but there's a lady down the street who, you know, my mom was on the Homeowners Association. She was the vice president of the Homeowners Association, and she was beloved in this neighborhood. It's a a lot of senior citizens. They all have opinions, and so having somebody who will listen to them on the the housing board, the Homeowners Association board, I think meant a lot to them. But as a result, you know, my mom also had to listen to a lot of whining, a lot of complaining about bullshit. And uh, so some people would call her and talk to her. But, you know, in March, I got a call on my mom's phone from a lady down the street who had never actually met my mom in person, kind of like they knew each other on the Internet. No, they actually, they'd spoken on the phone, but my mom had helped this lady, I guess, with some sort of homeowners association issues. But this lady told me, and I didn't know her, you know, I didn't know who she was, but she told me she had been in a a bad car accident in March, right as the quarantine order was issued, and she was hospitalized for a couple weeks, spinal, broken bones, some sort of back damage. She's an older woman in her 60s, now she's in a walker, on a walker, and can't can't even check the mail, and wasn't able to get any physical therapy. You think about that, was in a very severe car accident right as all this happened and couldn't really get any follow-up care. I felt terrible. And she asked me if I would check the mail for her through all this. Not every day, just when she needed it. And boy, I felt like a good person. I felt I felt like a good person. Just, uh, I was trying not to think about it, though. I was trying not to be like, oh, I'm such a good person doing this nice thing for somebody who really desperately needs it. But, it, you know, a part of me, for whatever reason, I was like, you know, I'm not going to give her my personal phone number. I've given other people my personal phone number. You know, I've given it to some, some other people uh, in the neighborhood, things like that. I didn't, for whatever reason, though, just intuitively, I, I just thought, you know, I'm just going to... I still have my mom's cell phone active, so I'm going to let her call that phone, which I check periodically throughout the day. And, you know, I checked the mail for her a couple times, and I could tell that she doesn't have a lot of human contact right now, and she's, you know, she's in a bad position physically. But, you know, so she wanted to talk. Like, when I dropped the mail off, you know, I had my mask on, we kept our distance, but she wanted to talk about things. But I noticed the first time that it started to veer into complaining, what you might call whining. And when I realized which house was hers, too, I remembered that my mom had told me, she, my mom had complained about the fact that this woman would call her and just complain endlessly about all kinds of things. So I remember it was like that in, intuition that I had to not give this woman my personal phone number. It kind of it confirmed that, and I was like, oh, yeah, this was that lady that my mom, who loved everybody, this is that lady that my mom was kind of annoyed by. You know, nothing hateful. My mom wasn't like, I hate that woman. It was just something that my mom was a little annoyed by this lady. And I, and so I was like, oh, yeah. So the first time I got the mail for her, she kind of started to get into this territory and where she was complaining. She lives in a duplex, and she was complaining about the people next door to her, the people in the, and she, we were on her porch, and she was, like, vocally saying bad things about them, which made me feel really awkward, I want to be like, hey, I'm not a part of this, hey, neighbors, if you can hear this, I'm not, can, I'm not endorsing what she's saying, this is really awkward, because you guys share a wall, 
And even if you are the bad neighbors she thinks you are, I, I just don't want to be involved. I'm just checking the mail here. I'm just being, a, I'm such a good person, aren't I? But I could tell that in that first interaction that I was like, oh, you know, she does whine and uh, she does complain. And then the next time I got it for her, she didn't even really hesitate to launch into some sort of complaint about something. And and I could tell there was kind of a neediness, too, of wanting me saying that she was like, oh, next time I order takeout, you know, if, let me know if you want something. And I was like, that's great. And, and, and then she started talking about how there's this other place, but you have to go there. They won't deliver it to your house. And she was like, well, maybe you could go there and get it for me. And, like, I haven't gotten any takeout throughout this whole thing. You know, I don't need it. I have a very strict diet, and I don't. I want to minimize my interaction with people. You know, I don't want to go, you know, it's not that, and I don't have the money. I don't have the money to be getting, like, you know, a $15 meal right now. So it's just none of the above. But but anyway, she offered to buy me food, but then it went from, like, wanting to order delivery and give me some to then, like, I could tell, though, that it was, like, to, like, me going and getting food, you know, and bringing it back. And it's just, it's awkward. And, you know, especially because I started to feel, oh, this is that lady that my mom warned me about. And my mom warned me about nobody. And I don't want to be complaining about her here. I really don't want to be. And so I'm hesitant to even talk about it. But it is one of those little lessons where it was just, oh, I feel like I'm a great person helping out this person who needs it. And I'm going to continue to do that. But it was just, oh, but there is this other side where this is a kind of test. And not that this other person's humanity is some sort of test or game to me, but it was just something where I was like, oh, here I thought I was being a great person, the good Samaritan, the great neighbor. The great neighbor. But it, it turns out there's this other, there's kind of this, uh, this backwash. It's kind of, it kind of feels like backwash, you know, this like drop the mail off, listen to complaining. And then today she called me again and She's like, oh, and you know, because I decided that I'm not going to reach out to her about getting the mail. Anytime she needs the mail, she can call me. And she called me today. She's like, oh, you know, I haven't, I haven't, my mail hasn't been checked in two weeks. And you know, someone like that who complains about everything and everybody, they will complain about you too. It's like your friend who gossips about your other friends, how they will gossip about you when you're not there. You just know it's like, oh, I'm the special one. Don't convince yourself of that. Don't believe that. Oh, this friend of mine who talks shit about all my other friends, and I've been that person. I've talked shit about my friends. You know, not anymore, but, you know, I've been that, you know, at least I try not to. It slips out. You know, we do it. Familiarity breeds contempt. The people you know the best, you're going to have the most dirt on the people that you know the best. So it's a, a little bit inevitable, but you can train yourself not to do that, and you can not participate in social groups where that's the currency. But, uh, the, you know, it's like, and I, and I don't want to become the person who's now complaining about the lady who complains. But anyway, you know, today it was like, I kind of, I almost felt like, I don't know if she was trying to guilt me, but I almost, you know, if this lady finds problems with everything else, she could easily be finding a problem with me. And uh, it just, she didn't, each time that I've had interaction with her, she's launched into some sort of whining and complaint about somebody or something more quickly each time. Like, as someone becomes more comfortable with you, you know, people are on their best behavior when they first meet you. But it's like, as this woman has become more comfortable with me, each time she's launched into something a little bit quicker. 
And sure enough, when I got her mail today, right away, she, she was like, oh, and, and the last time I got it too, you know, she called me after I got the mail and went back home. She, I, got, I was getting another call from her and I knew she didn't need anything. So I was like, I'm not even going to answer it. But then today she was like, oh yeah, you know, the reason I called you after you checked my mail the last time is because I got this in the mail and they told me my fence is damaged and I need to get it fixed for the HOA. And, you know, I'm sorry to be putting the listeners through this. I really am. I, I guess I do need to vent because I guess it, it, you know, it did bother me as much as I don't want to get bothered by things. I am bothered by it. It did kind of irritate me and I didn't let her know that, but it was like she right away today launched into a whole thing. And, and she didn't even, you know, she didn't even, there wasn't even any primer. You know, she didn't even uh, put any primer on the car before she started painting it. She just right away launched into this negative rant about the people next door yet again. Loudly on her porch of this duplex. She shares a wall with these people. And, you know, started complaining about this and that. And I'm just like, and I told her, too, with people like this, even if you tell them, because I told her, I was like, oh, hey, I have to meet up with a friend. It was, you know, one of my closest friend's birthdays today, uh, my friend Anna, Batty's mom, previous owner. It was her birthday, and it was very important. She's part of my quarantine, one of the only people, you know, I'm one of the only people who's part of her family's quarantine. So it was important to, you know, birth, you know, it sucks to, you know, I imagine it must suck to have a birthday during all this. And so it was important to see my friend during this. And I, I told this woman, oh, I have, I have something I have to do today, so, you know, I have to go. And But people don't listen to that. People like this, you know, they don't listen to that. People like this. They don't listen to you about that. And so I just, I had to forcibly just be like, oh, hey, I've got to go. You know, just rip myself out of there. And, you know, the thing is, though, is it was a good lesson because I was feeling really high about myself. I was trying not to. I was trying not to turn it into a thing where I'm a great person helping this lady out who really needs it. But then it was a lesson where it's like, oh, there's this backwash. There's this backwash and this person also doesn't just need her mail to be checked. She also wants somebody to complain to and whine to, you know, whine at. And uh, so it was a good lesson in that where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, just because you're doing something good doesn't mean it's going to feel completely good. And so you don't get high and mighty about what you're doing, but that's not a reason not to do it. You know, I thought about it and I was like, you know, it's not like I'm if this lady needs me to check her mail, I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to do it with a smile on my face. But I'm also not going to allow myself to be subjected to this toxicity, which is what it is. You know, I'm not I think I'm even downplaying it. And I'm because I'm trying not to be mean about it. And maybe it's just circumstantial. Maybe it's just she was in this horrible car accident during the worst possible time, couldn't get any follow up care, doesn't have anybody else who can check her mail for her, which I shouldn't assume that that's because she's repelled everybody else, but maybe. But, you know, circumstances are rough and people are people who are doing great are in pain right now. People whose lives are completely structured and stable and they have jobs and love in their life, even those people are suffering a little bit more than they would be normally. So this lady has reason to be in pain and maybe even reason to suffer, you know, uh, certainly. But, you know, my mom had some experiences with her in years past, so this isn't new, you know. uh, But it's just a thing where it was just just a, a reminder that, oh, okay. 
but let's get away from that, you know, and and because there there are weird things happening, and you know, I find that people aren't saying hello. You would think that right now, if you pass someone on the street, and as long as you're ten feet away from them, that you would smile and say hi. And I've been making an effort to do that, not to stop someone on the street and have a conversation. But just if I'm passing somebody on a walk, you know, in the evening and they ride their bike near me or they happen to walk by, I'm trying to say hello. But I'm I'm noticing that not everybody's doing that. And that's okay. You know, I can't take it personally. And I'm not going to stop saying hi to people just because of that. But you have to notice when people are doing things right. That's a cliche, but there's that phrase, catch people doing something right. And that's another thing that, you know, I, I need to make more of an effort to do. And maybe that's the exact same thing I'm planning on doing, on making a conscious effort to do more. And I want to catch this lady doing something right. You know, she offered to buy me takeout food. And I'm not going to take her up on the offer because I the less, the less engaged I am with her, I feel like the better because of all this complaining and whining. But still, it's like that was a nice thing of her to offer. You know, I I don't need to be rewarded for checking her mail, but it was nice of her to offer that. So I do want to catch people doing things right. And I I want to remember the people who say hi to me first or who say hi back. And just because I'm seeing a lot of people right now who, I don't know if they're afraid of like my spit flying into their mouth from 12 feet away. I don't know what it is, but people aren't necessarily eager to say hi back to you right now. And maybe that's just how things are now. It seems like that's a common experience of the last, I don't know, just the modern era. I don't know if it's new or not, but I'm, I'm noticing it. But I'm also noticing when people are nice, when people are friendly. And as much as I talk about neighbors being cold and, you know, people not being very neighborly, I mean, my next door neighbor, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for them. You know, unlike the lady who hates the people next door in her duplex, the the house next door to me, you know, I really like them. They're really, they're polite, you know, and even though one of them only occasionally says hello back to me, one of them, who I believe is their partner, like their romantic partner, uh, they, she, she always... Lately, every time I see her, you know, the sun, it's sun's not, every time I see her, she's, she's really nice, asks me how I'm doing, we have a little back and forth, the perfect amount of neighborly time, neighborly consideration. How you doing? You know, like a step above small talk, but it's still small talk, and right now you can really feel the value of small talk. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want my friends and I just to sit there and make small talk with each other. But, you know, with your neighbor, that's good. With strangers, that's good. Small talk has value. There's a time and a place for small talk, the cashier. There's people who you want to make small talk with, and I really appreciate that my neighbor has made an effort. Even if I'm just taking the garbage out, I don't see her having a cigarette on her porch, and I hear just a kind voice. And I'm not going to say, oh, I, I appreciate that so much. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not I'm not going to tell her that necessarily. I'm not going to make things weird. But I am going to continue to have that sort of friendly exchange. And uh, it does make me feel better. It does make me feel better to be acknowledged. And I think that's all it really comes down to. That's what small talk is, that's what hello is. Acknowledgement is powerful. It's what people want when someone likes their goddamn post on social media. They're not looking for somebody to just, you know, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever seen. 
That thing you said is the best thing I've ever seen. People aren't looking for that in most cases. You know, people are just looking for acknowledgement. That's what a like button is. You know, that's all it is, is it's acknowledgement. It's why these people who make uh, YouTube videos or podcasts, it's why they talk about their views. It's acknowledge. They like to know that somebody acknowledged them. And I'm not above that. Even though I don't do this for acknowledgement, I'm not above that either. I'm not above wanting acknowledgement. You know, I mean, why else would I express myself if I didn't want somebody to hear it? If I didn't want somebody to notice in some way, to get something out of it, maybe. To just have it on in the background, whatever it is, to look at it. You know, with visual art, I started drawing again. You know, I haven't drawn throughout this whole thing, and I, the last couple nights I started working on a drawing I had started before, and it feels good. I'd gotten almost anti-creative. Not that I didn't feel the need to create, but I got, I got into this mode that was almost like, excuse that sound, like when I thought about the idea of drawing, I almost thought, drawing? Like, you know, who draws anymore? Who draws in 2020? And I found the last couple nights, the pressure that I put on myself to draw before, you know, it was, I, I would feel this urgency before the last few years, as, as I've kind of scheduled drawing into my life more, I felt this urgency, where I, I got to get this done, I got to work on this. And there's value to that. There's value to like putting that pressure on yourself, but for what? And right now, I don't feel that pressure, so I'm just simply enjoying kind of finishing this drawing. And uh, it's a good feeling. And that's what it should be. I don't have to draw flowers. I don't have to draw rainbows, and I never will. Uh, so the drawing itself doesn't have to be a good feeling, but there should be a good feel. I should feel good. It should feel right, because that's what goodness is. Goodness is when something just feels right, and it goes back to catching someone doing something right, but also catching yourself doing something right. Not so you can turn your ego into a big, you know, hot air balloon, but just to reinforce the things that you like doing that make you feel good. And uh, that's kind of the, the, the way that you can, it's, that, it's, the, it's the sixth sense in a way. You know, the sixth sense in a way is that. Is that. It's, it's being able to recognize when you feel that you are doing what's right for you and what's right for someone else for that matter. That's another one of those sixth senses. It turns out the sixth sense is a whole bunch of different senses. There's not just one. The sixth sense is sort of a revolving door of different senses that you have. And one of those is catching other people doing something right and you yourself doing something right. And those two things are perfect companions, (laughs) you know? Uh, Catching yourself doing something right and catching someone else doing something right. Just the perfect companions. This land is mine God gave this land to me 
this brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free.